gave my welcome and honor to be here with you all today, and I really do truly mean that. Um, we are in week five of our sermon series that we started uh, called What We Believe and Why We Believe It, which is a time we've set aside to start the year and look at our statement of faith, to look at the things we say we all believe, and um, we want to look at the scripture and examine uh, those things to see um, the reason that we have to believe those things, right? The Bible tells us, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a reasoned defense of anyone who asks for the hope that is within you. And uh, that's what we're here doing today. Uh, today, I will warn you too, it may feel like ground that gets retread frequently because this is this piece of our statement of faith where we, we make plain what we believe to be true about Jesus Christ, right? So in some ways, it's going to feel like a Christmas sermon and an Easter sermon kind of wrapped up into one right halfway through both of them, right? So um, stick with me. Don't, uh, don't get lost. Don't, don't take that for granted. And I think this is a great opportunity for us to see that uh, uh, going back to the gospel and going back to the person and work of Jesus Christ is, um, is central for us and it's key for us uh, for our eternal lives, but also for our lives today as we, uh, as we look for something, we look for light, we look for hope in this world that is going to just constantly try to beat us down and, um, and rob us of our joy. So as we do that, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to uh, Colossians 1. Uh, we're going to go ahead and read that before we begin, just to kind of help fix our eyes on who this Jesus is as we start asking these questions um, today um, from our statement of faith, right? So open up to Colossians 1, we're going to go ahead and just read uh, verse 15 uh, through, um, through verse 23 together. All right. All right, Colossians 1, uh, starting in verse 15. Paul writes this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." This is the word of the Lord. Amen. As we get started today, I want to leave you with a question. As we think about this, uh, this person, Jesus Christ, and not just merely a person, as we can tell from this writing in Colossians 1, but I want to ask you what you would think if I told you that your eternal destiny hinges all on the answer to a single question. I'm sure many of you who've been in church for a while probably can already guess the direction I'm going with this, right? 
And as we look at the statement of faith today and we dig into this text of Scripture, I think I really just want to plead with us here for a moment today that this kind of hypothetical question that I just posed is anything but hypothetical. Right? Our eternal destiny, life and death, heaven and hell, it all hinges on our answer to one single question. So what is that question? What is that question, Matt, you're probably asking, right? What is the question that I have to give the right answer to that will hold so much sway and so much power over my life? I know we just read from Colossians 1. If you would, really quick, flip over to Matthew 16 with me. Matthew 16 and verse 13, and let's see this interaction of Jesus and His disciples together. Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus is talking to His disciples, and we get this story recorded. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But He, Jesus, said to them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I remember being in seventh grade and uh, in a social studies lesson. And I remember my teacher looking at us at the class and, and telling us that he thought it was funny that Christians and Muslims and Jews couldn't get along. Because to him, it was ironic because they all worship the same God. Why couldn't these three groups get along? They all worship the same God, right? They're all claim Abraham as the father of this faith. And the reason why this statement that these three religions worship the same God is so fundamentally incorrect, it, it centers on this question that we've just posed today. Who do you say I am? When Jesus looks at his disciples and asks this question, it fractures that idea that I was taught in seventh grade social studies that these three groups all believe in the same God. And that's why we get our statement of faith and what it says today. If you can click back one slide, Jerry, I've got that on there for us to see exactly what our statement of faith is. So our statement of faith, the next line says, Jesus Christ, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We believe in His virgin birth, sinless life, miracles, and teachings. We believe in His substitutionary, atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, perpetual intercession for the lives of His people, and His personal, visible return to earth. We believe in a Jesus that is much more than a rabbi. We believe in a Jesus that was much more than a prophet. We believe in Jesus who was God in the flesh, who came to live and to die and to forgive sinners and to make us right before God. That's who we believe. As we go through this text today, hopefully we're going to see, and you can click to the next one now, Jerry, i got to get better at this whole slideshow thing, don't I? <laughs> hopefully we're going to see what this main idea that I have listed up there for us, which hopefully it's a little bigger for you on this side than it is on the other side. <clears throat> but right now we're going to see in our text and as we explore this day that Jesus Christ, this second person of the Trinity, came to earth as God in flesh, living a perfect life, dying a criminal's death to be a substitute, to pay the death of sin for all who trust in Him as Lord. That is the main idea today. That is at the heart of who we need to understand Jesus Christ to be. 
And we're going to focus in on this specific aspect of Jesus' day because, or it's fitting that we do that because uh, this is exactly what our statement of faith says, right? Um, and we're not going to be able to cover every bit of that, so we're going to focus in on this one part here because if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not going to be able to fit everything we need to say about who Jesus is into one 30- or 40-minute talk. Amen? So if I miss something, please don't hold that against me. I say that, too, because that's why I posed the question to us the way we did when we started, right? We're asking ourselves right now, what do we believe to be true about who Jesus is? I want us to ask ourselves that question like Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? We have to answer that question in accordance with what Scripture tells us is true about Jesus. And this is why we're digging into the topic today, because... And this is that why statement right there, right? Because Jesus reconciles us to God the Father by clothing us in His righteousness and promises that all who come to Him will have eternal life. So we need to understand who God is and we need to understand that this is what He does. And that's what, again, our statement of faith professes to believe and that's what I hope if you don't believe that here today, if you're watching you don't believe that, that, that these words would be... Um, these words would stick with us today and would either show us how precious Jesus truly is to us or show us how desperately we need him right now. <clears throat> so who do we say Jesus is, church? Amen. The first part of our statement of faith, when we, when we see that, we can click on to the next slide, Jerry. It names him. It names him right there as Jesus Christ. His first name, Jesus, which is the English translation or the transliteration of the Greek word Jesus, which is how the name Yeshua was said in Greek, right? So this is his actual name there. The second part, Christ, not a name but a title. Christ is the English word for the Greek word Christos, which, the Greek word, which is the Greek word that means anointed one. It's the equivalent of the word in Hebrew, Messiah, words we're familiar with, I'm sure, right? Messiah. He's the anointed one. So we believe Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God, the King of kings in the line of David and the one who was sent to bring salvation to the people of Yahweh. It's estimated, some say conservatively, that when you look at the Old Testament of the prophecies and the types and shadows that pointed to the Messiah, that there's over 300 examples of Jesus fulfilling these messianic texts. So when we say Jesus is the promised Messiah, we have a reason for that. Because we see in the Old Testament these promises coming true in the person and the work of Jesus. In Genesis 3, after the fall, we see God promise a seed of the woman. And it's interesting note too there, this is a seed of the woman, not of the man but the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And this is exactly what we see Jesus do when he goes to the cross, taking on punishment for sin that he was not guilty of, dying and rising again. On the cross, the curse of sin is broken, and Satan and death have been defeated. This is why Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus came to die 
to crush the head of the serpent, just like Genesis 3 told us one would come, right? Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 18.15 that there's going to be a new prophet that's going to rise up from Israel like him that's going to lead the people. David is told of a throne that God will establish forever that his descendants will sit upon in 2 Samuel 7. The Psalms, as we read the Psalms, they just drip in messianic language that points us to Jesus throughout. Think about Psalm 22. Verse 16, David writes this. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. he writes, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. David's life was recorded for us in Scripture. This never happened to David. So who exactly is he writing about? Whose hands and feet have been pierced? Whose garments have had lots cast for them? You can see Matthew 27:35, chapter 7, verse, or chapter, sorry, chapter 27, verse 35. We have a record of Jesus on the cross where it says, and when they crucified him, what the Roman soldiers do, they divided his garments by casting lots. Those words that David wrote were over a thousand years before the record of Jesus being put to death on the cross. It's amazing to see that kind of picture of this suffering servant described in such detail with so many shared um, similarities. It's amazing what we have in the Old Testament and the way that it points to Jesus and the way we see Him throughout it. We see Messianic verses in Isaiah, uh, like chapter 7, verse 14, where we see it say, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. should be kind of odd for people to read because virgins don't conceive and they don't bear children. Right? Not until they're married. That's the idea, right? Yet in, we have in chapter 1 of both Matthew and Luke's Gospel narratives the record of the birth of a son born from a virgin girl named Mary who has angels appear to her and tell her that this son she's about to bear is Emmanuel. Is God with us? So the first thing we say we believe in our statement of faith we believe because it is the central plot point of the Bible. It's the central piece of our faith. And that is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's anointed one who comes to save people from their sin. And as we see Jesus come on the scene as an adult and begin His earthly ministry, we see signs to confirm these uh, as signs as confirmations of this power that is unique to Him because He is truly God in the flesh. We have recorded in the Gospel narratives over 40 instances of healing and supernatural miracles that Jesus performed. Blind men able to see again in Mark 8 and John 9, Matthew 12 and Matthew 20. Leprosy, paralysis, people with severe sickness and physical ailments. Raising people from the dead. Jairus' daughter in Matthew 9. 
there's an unnamed man in Luke 7 and Lazarus. Lazarus in Luke 14. And of course himself after he was crucified and buried. Jesus was recorded to feed over 5,000 people. With five fish and two loaves of bread. I hope I said that right. For some reason it looked wrong. I hope I didn't miss those two up there. I didn't get enough sleep last night apparently. He fed 5,000 people with hardly anything. He turned water into wine. He was recorded as walking on water. He calmed a storm with the words of his mouth. He withered a fig tree. And these were the things that were recorded for us that are only a taste, as uh, John's Gospel says, of what he did. And John says it in uh, chapter 21, verse 25. He says, Now there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's no ordinary man, amen? Well, the Gospels are full of his miracles and his healings. We have all throughout these historical reckonings, or historical reckonings, well, we have all these recordings of his miracles and his, and his healings, right? You can click back one slide too, Jerry, I'm sorry. We have him as, as Messiah, we have him as healer, but we also, have him, we also see him in the Gospels as teacher. And these teachings that he gave were not like the teachings of men. Matthew 7, verse 28, we see the response Jesus received from people who heard him. There, Matthew records for us, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus came and he taught with power and authority that was unlike anything these people had ever seen. And it's amazing, though, even though he was in front of them and this was acknowledged that, that this was true, it was undeniable, so often he was still rejected by the people, though, wasn't he? He was chased out of town. He was the suffering servant we talked about who was mocked and scorned. He was the cornerstone who was rejected by Israel. We see that exact thing in Luke chapter 4 in verse 16. If you want to, flip over with me too. Didn't realize you're getting a Bible workout this morning, did you? Hopefully everybody's been pumping their iron and flipped these pages. Luke chapter 4 and 16 we have this story recorded of Jesus. Back one more page. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, it says this, And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the liberty to the, liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Even in the middle of this, Jesus opening this scroll of Isaiah and doing exactly what we did, looking to the Old Testament saying, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This text of the Old Testament is talking about me, not me, Jesus says me. And the people hear it and they're amazed and they're mesmerized, but then what happens? It creeps in and says, wait, this is the son of Joseph. Who does he think he is? In his hometown, the people hear this proclamation that he's fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah in front of them. And they can't deny the power of his words and the authority that he clearly came to them with as he declared these things about himself as true. But ultimately, they turn on the one that they had just marveled at. And in verse 29, if you kept reading, they rise up and they try to drive him out of town with the intention of killing him. Because Jesus just made a claim about himself that if he's not who he says he is, would require him to be put to death. And this is where we come back to that question that we have to answer. We see so many people in Jesus' day that in spite of the evidence that they've seen with their own eyes, reject their Messiah. This is why Peter's answer to that question that Jesus asked his disciples back in Matthew 6 that we read earlier is so important to our understanding and to the formation of why we believe what we believe about Jesus to be true. I kind of left off the punchline of Matthew 16 earlier and I stopped us at verse 15. But if we, we looked back to that, I'm going to flip back over and read it to you again. Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, and here's the punchline, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. There's a reason why so many people wanted to kill Jesus. And while there were a few different reasons that they would use to justify this action, Peter's claim here that he makes of Jesus sits at the heart of those reasons. Because the statement Peter makes here about Jesus, this is punishable by death for blasphemy. He has elevated Jesus to a position that no man should ever be put on in comparison to Yahweh. Unless, unless, the things that we see that are true about Jesus in the Bible, unless the things that Jesus says about Himself are true, unless He is the Messiah, unless He is the one who is sent from God, who is the Son of Man from Daniel 7, who is given His power and authority from the Ancient of Days to rule over all of creation, it should be put to death unless what He's saying is true. This is where C.S. Lewis was famous for um, saying that it's not possible to just accept Jesus as a moral teacher. Because the things that Jesus said about Himself and the things that the Bible claims to be true about this man Jesus, you would never attribute to somebody that you would just say is a great moral teacher. 
Lewis said, you have to examine who Jesus is and the claims that the Scripture makes about Him. And when you see those things, you've got three options. He's either a liar, and He's not who He said He was, and He should have been put to death for blasphemy. He's a lunatic. He's a crazy man who's trying to tell people that He's God in the flesh. Or we have to accept what He's saying is true. And if that's the case, then He's Lord. Why do we sit there and ask this question, right? Why do we have to examine these claims? Well, because if we think back to what we read in Colossians 1, there are some pretty mighty claims made about who Jesus is. You can flip back there with me. Let's read a little bit of it together, and let's dig into that piece of text now. You can click on to the next slide now too, Jerry. Colossians, there we go. Colossians chapter 1, just these first three verses, uh, 15, 16, and 17. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This is no mere man. In these three verses from Paul, we see several striking observations about the truth of who Jesus is. First, right there in verse 15, he's called the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God in the flesh, walking the earth amongst men. And in him we see the wisdom and the love and the compassion and the righteous anger. We see God's attributes in him as he was on this earth. And this statement that he is the image of the invisible God, it points us back to this triune nature of Yahweh that we've been looking at, that we started looking at three weeks ago, as Jesus reveals to us his Father who is not seen. This is what we see John say in chapter 1 of his Gospel, where in verse 18 he tells us, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Not only do we see in these statements here the divinity of Jesus and His role in revealing God the Father to man, but we have this statement of Jesus' kingship back in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 16. It says here that He is... The, or Sorry, verse 15. It says here is the firstborn of creation. One thing to note immediately is that this statement is not saying that Jesus was born. This statement is not saying that Jesus is not eternal, that He does not share in those attributes with the Father like we've talked about two weeks ago with the Trinity. No, this statement is telling us about His position among, amongst creation, right? Think about it this way. Think about earthly kings and who gets to inherit the throne from an earthly king? Firstborn, right? Typically, across the face of the world, typically when you have a king, the person who inherits the throne is the firstborn, that's the one who holds the power of kingship in their hands, the firstborn son. So what you have here is not a statement in uh, verse 15 about the origins of Jesus, but of Jesus' position over creation as king, which fulfills ultimately what the Lord said to David in Samuel, or 2 Samuel. 
as Jesus here is His descendant, and He is this King who has power and authority to rule, not just for a set length of time, not just for a short um, lifetime, but forever. Forever, because He is God. Verse 16 and 17 of Colossians 1 tell us something about Jesus' nature which makes it plain to us that He is no ordinary human being. There's power in the person of Jesus that no man can claim. Think about this this way. I know my wife, my wife loves me, and I know she thinks I'm the best man in the world, right? Ask her, she'll tell you I'm her BMW. Best man in the world, right? But even with the love that she has for me, and the respect that she shows me a lot of times when I don't deserve it, and the way that she goes out of her way to build me up and to make a good name for me. She's the most positive person in the face of this planet about me, frankly. Even more than me. She'd never claim anything of what verse 16 and 17 says about me. She'd never sit there and tell, tell you that I hold all things together with the power of my words, right? She would never say that thrones and dominions and rulers or all things were created by me. That's not something she could ever claim about me, no? No matter how much she loves me and thinks I'm great. These things that are said about Jesus in verses 16 and 17 can only be attributed to God Himself. And Paul tells us here that Jesus made all things, His power is holding all things together, that He is before all things. Who is this man that Paul... Paul, a good, observant Jew who knows the law, who would stone people for blasphemy like this. Who is this man that he's saying these things about? I think if we look back to John chapter 1, we see the same testimony of who Jesus is. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that, so you don't have to flip there. We'll just read it quickly for you. John chapter 1, John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is who Jesus is. And these writings that we have that talk about His character and His nature, it leaves us with no wiggle room on who, we're to, or who we are supposed to see Him as. It's like that one point on the slide says, the Scripture makes it plain in its claim on the identity of Jesus that He is the eternal God. Amen. Verse 19 of Colossians 1 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is who the Bible tells us who Jesus is. And this is why we say what we do about uh, what this is why we say we believe what we do about who Jesus is. Because like when Jesus asked his disciples, "Who do you say I am?" and Peter replied, "You're the Christ, the Son of the living God." Peter saw him face to face and he saw these things that we read. And we see the evidence of Scripture that is overwhelming, and we see claims about Jesus that have to be answered to. 
And the only conclusion that we can confess is true is that the one or is the one that Jesus and his disciples say is true about himself. He is truly not just a man. He walked the earth, he healed, he taught, he died and rose again, but he is the eternal God. As we turn our attention toward the end of our time today, I want to ask that question again. I've repeated it several times, so hopefully everybody here leaves today with it going through your, going through your mind. This question, remember I said, your eternal destiny hinges upon its answer, right? Who do you say Jesus is? You can click on to the next one for me, Jerry. That'd be great. Who do you say Jesus is? This is that question upon which our eternal destiny hinges. This is the question we have to look at the evidence of Scripture. This is the question we have to look at the evidence that uh, the Holy Spirit testifies is true about Jesus in our lives. Because the Bible makes it clear that all men have fallen short. All men have sinned against God. All men are rebels in their hearts and their actions against their Creator. All men are dead in their trespasses. And we will stand before God on a day of judgment to give an account of our lives. And who are you going to tell God, or what are you going to tell God on that day? What are we going to tell God when we stand before Him and we're afraid and we're naked like Adam and Eve and we want to hide and we have nowhere to go? Look back at Colossians with me for just a minute. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And Jesus who is God in the flesh, we see the one who is the Messiah, the one who has come to do what uh, we see in Colossians say, to come to reconcile, reconcile people who have done nothing but wander from God. He brings peace, Paul tells us, peace between God and men. Men who would live in active rebellion against their Creator. Jesus comes peace to bring an end to that conflict that we would have no hope of winning and takes us, and he takes us from that place, and he presents us to God, holy and blameless, not because of what we've done, but because of his kindness and his mercy and his grace. He gave himself up as a substitute to pay the debt we owed to God from the life, and from that we have eternal life. With that eternal life that He gives us, He also promises us new life. He promises us new life with new hearts and new desires that cause us to want to see our sin stay crucified with Jesus. He causes us, as He transforms our heart through the grace and the mercy that He's won for us, to leave behind the hostility towards God and the evil deeds that we once did. I think this is the gospel. 
This is the gospel. This is that message, the word that we use over and over and over again. That we were far from God and we didn't deserve anything but His judgment. And we all felt it. We all felt the shame and the pain. We all felt that distance from our Lord. But He didn't leave us in that hopeless place. We were in a losing battle, fighting against God, trying so hard to just live our lives as we saw fit, indulging in all manner of things that were harmful to ourselves, harmful to our families, harmful to our neighbors, and doing these things despite God, shaking our fist at Him, saying, Who needs you anyway, God? But we say Jesus Christ is the, or Jesus is the Christ. Like Peter looked at Him and said, You are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. That's who we say He is. He's the one who saves us from this wretched state, who takes us from being God's enemies and makes us children. God's children in faith. As we answer that question of who Jesus is, and we profess that You are the Christ, You are the Son of the living God, and we realize there is no one else that we can live for, there is no other path we can walk down. I think we see uh, Colossians 1.23 challenge us with the question of how are we to live now? If this is who Jesus is, what does it mean for our lives? In verse 21 it says this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow him answering that question of who Jesus is by saying, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. Yes, Jesus, you are Messiah. means that we're going in a different direction in life than we did before. The call to deny ourselves in Matthew 16 means that we're going to leave things behind. We're going to leave behind our, our lying and our, our thievery and our coarse talk. We're going to leave behind our lusts and our sexual immorality. We're going to leave behind hatred of our neighbor. We're going to leave behind racism. We're going to leave behind selfishness and pride. All these things Jesus died for. So the call He puts on our lives now is to leave those things behind and to follow Him. That's why we see Paul warn us in these verses in Colossians we just read not to shift from the hope of the Gospel. Don't turn to other false Gospels that tell you your salvation is dependent upon works that you must do. Don't turn to, our, to false Jesuses who are different in their character and their nature and what Scripture has revealed to us. And continue on in your faith. Not as one who happily returns to your sin with little regard for the price your Savior paid to set you free and to win your eternal salvation. Continue on in your faith. The amazing thing about that is right at the end of verse 23, we see an example of what transformation in Christ looks like. We see an example of the heart and the life transformation that comes from saying, yes, Jesus, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. 
right there at the end of verse 23. In all creation of heaven and earth, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul, this religious zealot, this man who was chasing Christians down, persecuting them, stoning them, this man who was a murderer, who was trying to hinder the work of God, who was trying to hinder the church, this man now says that he's become a minister of this message to which he had dedicated his life previously to stopping. What an amazing story. We just take for granted, right? Because we read it and we see it. Was there a better example of an enemy to God who God took and drew near and transformed his life and used for the sake of the kingdom in powerful ways? The Bible isn't full of perfect people doing perfect things, teaching us moral lessons. I know uh, I remember one time seeing um, at a Christian bookstore in the kids' section a a set of trading cards that was labeled Bible All-Stars. And I I know what they were getting at. I know they were trying to use those as ways to teach your kids about stories in the Bible and things like that. But it never set well with me because when I looked at that, and I told my wife this at the time, I said, that should be the easiest collection of cards to ever get because it's one card there's one all-star in the bible we're not looking to paul as an example to just follow and live after we're not looking to david we're not looking to moses we're not looking to any of these people we read about we're not looking to peter right Think about these shortcomings of these people. Think about how far away from God and the grace and the mercy that we see poured out on them. It's not perfect people doing perfect things that we emulate. There was only one of those. And we see Him at work in the lives of these men and women in the Scripture who were far from Him, who turned to Him. Story of Ruth. What a beautiful story, right? doesn't start beautiful. Two ladies' husbands die, and there's famine. And in their desperation, Naomi says, you know what, go back to your family. My two daughters-in-law, go back to your family. And I'm going to go back to my country and we're just going to move on because all of our husbands are dead. There's no food here, so what do we do? One goes back and what does Ruth, what does Ruth do? Looks at Naomi. I'll go where you go. Your people will be my people. Your God is my God. There's only one all-star in the Bible, and it's him working in the lives of sinful, broken people that brings about transformation in our own lives, that brings about a change of heart, that brings about a sensitivity to our sin to where when we lose our patience with our kids, right, Timothy? We think about that later, and we come back to them and we say, I shouldn't have spoken that harshly with you. I love you sits there and we see our neighbor in need and we go out across the street. Somebody who may be completely different from us, but just like that story of the Good Samaritan, we go because Jesus calls us to go, to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is Him working in our lives, a transformed life. Not us trying to work and to give and to prove ourselves to Him, but to sit there and to shine the light of His grace into a world that so desperately needs to hear it. 
Who do we say Jesus is? It leads us into the last two points of application. And we started five minutes late, so I don't want to hear anybody talk about how me going late today. So, Again, that first question, who do you say Jesus is? It's not hypothetical. Your eternal destiny depends upon it. If you believe that today and you've already said, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, I praise you, God, for what you've done in my life. Amen. See Him today for how truly precious He is. And if it's not you, if you're here or you're listening online and you've only thought about this question in a passing way or you've never really truly pondered it, see Jesus today as Lord and turn to Him. Experience His grace and His mercy. Experience what it means to be a child of God to be brought into a community of believers who love and encourage and build one another up. When we profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can't understate the assurance that we have with our salvation being secure in what Jesus has done for us. Right? Jesus doesn't give us a mulligan. Anybody play golf? Anybody know what a mulligan is? Mulligans, when you're bad at golf and you're out playing with your friends, you sit there and say, I get a do-over, right? I hit that one poorly, which is not the way we say it. Usually there's some anger and frustration and yelling maybe. And then everybody sits there and says, I need a mulligan. Jesus is not a mulligan. Jesus isn't a do-over. Jesus doesn't say, I forgave you, now don't do it again, right? Or you're going to have to get on out because you only get one shot. Jesus takes our life and he transforms it into something new, to something different. And yes, we're going to wrestle with sin. Yes, we're going to struggle. Yes, we're not going to live perfectly the way that we want to uh, conform to the image of our Christ the way the Scripture tells us to, right? But we have an assurance that what Jesus has done for us on the cross has been won and is secure and we don't have to sit there and worry about, it, um, about ever losing it. Because it's all about the work that he's done for us not about the work that we're doing for Him. So who do you say Jesus is? Take heart in the, that first bit there. If you, if you profess like Peter did that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of the living God, and He is your Savior, you are His forever. You are His forever. And you just get to live that out now in all its fullness. All the glory, all the rejoicing, all the persecution but we're His. The second thing for us to consider as application today as we look to who Jesus is, I've got it up there, it says Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord. These are two things that we see are true, that we say we believe in our statement of faith. Right? Because we saw who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the one sent from God. He is God Himself with the power to save people from sin. But He saves us from something to something else, right? He takes us out of the life that we're living and He takes us to a new life with a transformed heart and a transformed mind. With a desire we should have to leave behind our sin. To leave behind those things that kept us far from God. That's why it says Jesus is Savior, but Jesus is Lord. 
The saving grace we get from Him charts a new course for our life. He's our Savior, but He's our King. And He calls you to leave the King that we used to serve, right? The Prince of the power of the air. The One who rules this world. And He calls us to conform our lives to the image of Himself. It's amazing to think the gift that salvation is it offers us, but there's an amazing blessing to us here and now. It's because of this assurance of salvation, Paul tells us in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who, he who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? It's an amazing blessing that this assurance of salvation we have, we see Paul talk about in Philippians 4. And as he's facing great persecution, he says this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all these things through Him who strengthens me. It's this assurance of faith that causes Paul to write earlier in Philippians 1. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What a statement, Paul. To live is Christ. To die is gain. If we lose everything we have, if it's all gone tomorrow, we have everything we ever needed in Christ. And if the worst possible thing that could have ever happened to us, right? The, we finally go to our grave and... and our time on this earth is over. That great hope and that assurance we have tells us that we've gained so much more. Assurance of salvation we have in Jesus, it frees us from the greatest enemy in this world. That enemy that I'm talking about is death. Since we no longer have to fear what comes after death because of what Jesus has done, we can look at the world with confidence and with hope we can look at the world that's full of fear knowing that we have a Savior who sympathizes with our weaknesses because He came and He lived and He was hungry and He was hurt and He was beaten and He was scorned and He did die. That's why Hebrew 4, 14 and 15 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This man Jesus, who is God in the flesh, walked this earth, and He felt the pains of an empty stomach. He felt the pain of the lashes on His back. He felt the pain of nails being driven into his hands and his feet. He felt the pain of the rejection of his people. He felt the pain of being mocked and scorned and spit upon. We don't have a high priest 
who was unable to sympathize with us. Amen? We have one who's been here, who's walked this earth as we have. And through him, through his death, through his resurrection, we have hope. Because he is God. He's proven it to be that. And we know that when our eyes close for that final time, we're going to be looking at him face to face. It's amazing truth. This is an amazing truth for us to cling to as we trust that Jesus is Lord because we live in a world today where fear is ultimately a currency. People profit off that. People, people live to keep people afraid. And we have a world who needs to hear this message that perfect love casts out fear, like it says in 1 John 4. People sit there and try to create division and strife. And they try to sit there and say, be afraid of this political party or that political party. Be afraid of this color person or that color person. Be afraid because the world's going to end in eight years if we don't reduce our carbon emissions. Be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid. That's the message of this world is to live your life in fear and be afraid. That's not the message we have in Christ. We have a message of hope. We have a message that He is King and ruler and has authority over all of this. And we see perfect love casting out all fear, just like 1 John 4 says. And from that hope we have, the last little bit for us too, the last bit from our statement of faith we say we believe, is we know that Jesus wins at the end of the story. We can go to the end. We can see what happens. We may disagree about some of the details about how and when it happens. But we know that He's coming. We know He hasn't left us. And we know we're going to see the day when He does away with sin and death forever. That's who Jesus is. That's who we say He is. That's what we as a church profess to believe. Who do you say Jesus is today? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we just come before you to worship now, Lord. God, I pray that Jesus is precious to us today, Father. Let him be precious to us in a way that maybe he wasn't when we walked in the door. And I pray if, if nothing else, Lord, if, if all we get from this today is this one question, Lord, let us walk out the door repeating to ourselves, who do we say Jesus is? Because when we answer that question, we answer that question and line it up with what you say is true about yourself, Father, what you say is true about your Son, it changes everything. So Lord, work in our lives right now. Let us conform to the image of Christ. Lord, if, we're, if there are people who are hearing this that don't believe that hear that question and say they're skeptical about that answer, who Jesus is. Lord, I just pray that you, you'd work in their lives right now so that they would hear this good news in a new way, that they would see this good news and they would see Jesus for who he truly is. And Lord, that the hope and the joy and the peace and the assurance, Father, that we get to experience when we come to Christ, Lord, would just be theirs. Help us to take the gospel to people who need to hear it, Lord, to be set free from their fear. Lord, who would just be, so the Lord we would see a world rejoicing and praising your name. Be with us now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.